everyone. Welcome back to NATO's Road to Madrid, a new podcast from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where we're breaking down the main issues on NATO's agenda ahead of the NATO Summit in Madrid next year. I'm your host, Rachel Elihus, Deputy Director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia Program at CSIS. In our first episode, I spoke with Ambassador Alexander Vershbaugh, former Deputy Secretary General of NATO, and Ambassador Baiba Braja, Assistant Secretary General for Public Diplomacy. We explored some of the broader questions facing NATO, such as the changing security environment, NATO's relationship with Russia, and how the alliance may try to balance its core tasks in a new strategic concept. This week, we're diving into the most essential of those core tasks, collective defense and deterrence. During the Cold War, NATO's primary mission was simple, to deter and defend its members against threats emanating from the Soviet Union. Nuclear weapons were part of this deterrence posture, The mission itself was clear, as was defining success. Since then, things have become more complicated. Adversaries have found many ways to act aggressively towards NATO and its members, to include actions below the so-called threshold of armed conflict. In this episode, I speak with two experts about the evolution of NATO's overall deterrence posture. Our first guest is Jessica Cox, Director for Nuclear Policy on the NATO International Staff. We discuss how NATO's nuclear posture has adapted along with the security environment and how it may or may not interact with NATO's conventional deterrence. Our second guest is Michael Mazar of RAND, one of Washington's leading experts on deterrence. Dr. Mazar clarifies why deterrence in the gray zone is so difficult and highlights some of the challenges associated with multi-domain deterrence. We hope you enjoy the discussion. I'd like to first begin by introducing our first guest this morning. It's Jessica Cox, who's the Director for Nuclear Policy on the NATO International Staff. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk with Jessica about the role of NATO's nuclear posture in deterrence and defense. The triad of NATO's conventional nuclear and missile defense capabilities um, are, are core of NATO's deterrence and defense posture, and nuclear weapons in particular have been part of this deterrence and defense posture all the way since NATO's inception more than 70 years ago. So needless to say, much has changed since then. So Jessica, to start us off, is NATO's nuclear umbrella still relevant today? And if so, why? Thank you for that question. Um, Yes, I think absolutely NATO's nuclear umbrella is relevant today uh, and really has has continued to play an important role over the past 70 years, as, as you point out. But I think it's actually growing in importance today. And there's there's a couple of reasons for that. First, of course, is our changing security environment. Russia obviously has been investing pretty significantly in its own nuclear deterrence capabilities. So since the downswing after the end of the Cold War, Russia has kind of reinvested in its nuclear deterrence capabilities and specifically invested in in capabilities that uh, hold European NATO at risk and are, are specifically designed to um, you know address some of our our weaknesses in in our posture so as we look at our security environment the nuclear threat is increasing so it's important to make sure that our our nuclear deterrence remains strong and credible in order to you know prevent 
uh, Russia's ability to gain nuclear advantage. But the second reason that it's also still really important is because of the reassurance element of our nuclear deterrent posture. NATO's nuclear deterrent, of course, is not just for for the United States against Russia. It's it provides protection and security for all of the allies under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. And, and it's a it's a really tangible, um, you know, visible link across the Atlantic between the Americas and Europe. And so this reassurance element is still really important as well. And the, the, the kind of physical demonstration that the United States supports allies, that, we, that the United States remains uh, committed to the alliance and to the to the security of all allies, you know, the, the, in a very, very fundamental way by, by the extension of its nuclear deterrence. So I think we see both of these factors uh, becoming more critical over time as we see, you know, our security environment deteriorating, as we see pressures being put on the alliance. Both of these elements remain really critical and are making NATO's nuclear deterrence posture even more important than it may have been in the last few years. Thank you so much. I mean, that ability to adapt coupled with the U.S. commitment to European security and defense have really been cornerstones of the alliance. And so to hear you say that only underscores that that the nuclear umbrella is part of that. Um, you talked a little bit about the importance of ensuring the credibility of NATO's nuclear posture as the capabilities of adversaries have changed. Can you give us a couple of examples of, of how NATO has made that ap- adaptation to ensure the continued credibility of its nuclear posture? Absolutely. Um, NATO is really working on a couple of different fronts to increase the credibility of our of our nuclear deterrence. And I, w- I should you know, be clear that we are not increasing the number of nuclear weapons or the types of nuclear weapons that are deployed here in, in Europe, but we are taking steps to ensure that our capabilities are more credible against this changed security environment. So first and foremost, our nuclear weapons themselves uh, are being life extended by the United States. So our B-61 weapons um, are being, you know, kind of uh, extend, extending the life of these weapons so that they are continue to be uh, relevant uh, and useful into the future. Um, but more significantly, allies are making increased investments uh, to upgrade the delivery platforms for these the U.S. nuclear weapons, which are dual-capable aircraft fleets. So these are fighter aircraft that um, have a normal day-to-day conventional role, but in a in a nuclear conflict would be the ones that would deliver the U.S. nuclear weapons. Um, so nations are investing in fifth-generation aircraft, uh, much of the fleet will be transitioning to U.S. F-35s. And so we're really seeing some enhanced capabilities for our de- on the delivery side that will ensure the credibility of, these, of our capability, um, particularly in light of Russia's increasing air defense, air missile defense systems. But in addition to kind of the nuclear side of things, we're also increasingly focused on ensuring we have the appropriate conventional capabilities to support our nuclear mission. In the pantheon of great 
acronyms. We call this SNOWCAT, um, but it's essentially the, the system of conventional capabilities that would be drawn from to ensure that a nuclear mission was successful. So things like suppression of enemy air defenses, you know, supporting aircraft, even, you know, kind of long range fires so that you can you can attract your um, defenses in advance. So all of those types of conventional capabilities, we want to make sure that the the pool of forces that NATO has available is sufficient uh, for the nuclear mission, along with our broader kind of conventional role and conventional warfighting requirements. So that's another area where we're really looking to enhance our, our credibility of our posture. We're also looking to upgrade our security infrastructure around the weapons and our delivery systems. So this is things that are both physical, like enhancing our our security forces around our air bases and things like that, but also technological. So ensuring that our, our command and control infrastructure and architecture is modern, is um, resilient against, uh, you know, kind of future threats like cyber threats and things like that. So we're really looking at to make sure that our that our whole network and system is is survivable is resilient and is is really postured to face not only the threats of today but the potential threats of tomorrow thank you jessica that was a very comprehensive explanation of all the steps individual allies as well as nato is taking to to reinforce that that nuclear posture and it underscores that dual commitment um, of the U.S. and European allies, as well as how seriously uh, NATO takes that commitment in terms of security and survivability. So, you know, the the mantra is as long as nuclear weapons exist, NATO will have them, um, but have them in a responsible way, I think is important to stress. And you've just laid that out nicely. May I ask a question, a follow on to that about Mm -hmm. exercises? I know that in the past, NATO has had a bit of a firewall between conventional exercises and anything that was involving the the nuclear leg of that triad of capabilities. Has that position evolved whereby um, conventional exercises are now taking this nuclear dimension into consideration? Yes and no. I would say most of our conventional exercises are still largely focused on our conventional warfighting capabilities and our nuclear exercises are focused on our on our nuclear posture and our nuclear warfighting capabilities. And so we don't see, you know, kind of from a broader force management perspective, we don't see a tremendous amount of integration um, between these these two functions. And that's largely because we do have very specific nuclear processes and procedures that we don't exercise very often. And so when we do exercise them, we do want to really focus and ensure that our that our capabilities are safe, secure and effective and our processes and procedures are exercised. That all being said, I think what we are seeing uh, on the exercises front is our scenarios becoming, uh, both on the conventional side and the nuclear side, our, our scenarios becoming more complex, looking at, you know, having exercise adversaries that have nuclear capabilities, which, you know, is a, is a new addition for, for us post-Cold uh, War looking at, again, kind of ensuring that we have in our nuclear exercises that we're also exercising that conventional support that goes along with the nuclear capabilities. 
and looking at how nuclear oper- nuclear deterrence could potentially impact conventional operations in a conventional scenario, right? So, for instance, thinking about if we are in a in a slow burning unfolding conventional crisis or conflict what are the implications for our nuclear deterrence posture and what are the type, you know, making sure that we're able to manage escalation to prevent a conventional crisis from going nuclear and thinking about um, the broader political and military dynamics of a potential uh, conflict. So while we do still kind of maintain some, some pretty, um, you know, firewalls between conventional exercises and nuclear exercises, I would say the conversations that we're having uh, in both domains are much more complex and more sophisticated now than they were five or 10 years ago and thinking through all of these different elements. Thank you for that. That, That's very helpful. Well, you spoke about adversaries and how adversaries, and and here I'm thinking mainly of Russia and Iran, have made to their doctrine and their posture that's forcing adjustments to NATO's approach. Um, Are there some of those specific changes that, that you would highlight as as part of um, NATO's adjusting nuclear posture? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest change that we've seen in our security environment um, is Russia's development of intermediate and short-range missiles that are dual-capable that can now strike essentially any part of European NATO territory from the air, land, or sea. And we've really seen over the last decade just a tremendous buildup of Russia's dual-capable missile arsenal, which you know is very different, for instance, than our Cold War posture vis-a-vis Russia. So, so that is um, really driving a lot of our thinking, not just from nuclear deterrence, but looking at our broader, our broader, um, you know, kind of threat picture here uh, across the alliance, and looking at how we also need to make adjustments in our conventional posture and our and our missile defense capabilities, in addition to to our nuclear thinking, um, to make sure that we're able to not just deter Russia at the strategic nuclear level, but from a from a European regional standpoint, that we also have sufficient capabilities um, to deter Russia's potential regional aggression. And this is particularly important when you think about um, extended deterrence, back to kind of your first question, and making sure that we're able to deter and manage escalation at different, you know, different phases of the crisis and and at different levels, and making sure that Russia is not able to divide the alliance in either between North America and Europe or between, you know, different European allies, but that we have a really unified um, NATO nuclear posture and NATO nuclear deterrence mission that can withstand all of these potential threats or or aggressive actions from from Russia. And and we know, you know, we see, you know, Russia has a, a much more integrated view of, of its nuclear doctrine and policy and posture than than we do here at, at NATO. And so we have to be really um, building more flexibility into our thinking in order to be able to deter Russia at, at all these different levels and across the full, uh, a full alliance. 
that's a lot to think about already there. Another thing that I imagine is is affecting your thinking at NATO is, is the growing use of emerging and disruptive technologies. Is that an aspect that's forcing adaptation in NATO's nuclear posture? Absolutely. I mean, this is uh, emerging and disruptive technologies is obviously a, a huge topic and there's many different kind of technologies that are embedded in there. And I would say the the way we've approached the question of EDTs broadly at NATO is trying to both harness the opportunities the EDTs provide us while also um, ensuring that we're able to mitigate any of the challenges. So, you know, obviously something like hypersonic missile technology technology is a good example of how we may want to take advantage of some of these technologies to enhance our deterrence and defense posture, while also making sure that we're able to mitigate the threat that is posed to us by our potential adversaries' developments. Similarly, things like artificial intelligence, right? It has potential, really beneficial applications to help consolidate big data sets and help us better understand our information environment and and different signals and cutting signals through the noise. But it also could complicate our ability to make decisions in a crisis if we are not confident in the information that we're we're being provided or or have questions about how how it came about. So really, we're taking a very comprehensive approach and trying to see where we can take advantage of the benefits of these types of capabilities, but also make sure that we're we're able to mitigate it against the threats. And it also goes back to, you know, kind of my my comments earlier about making sure things like our NC3 architecture, our command and control are resilient. So we're able to, you know, withstand future threats from emerging and disruptive technologies. Um, that we're able to to harness them as well to protect our critical infrastructure. Um, and here I'm thinking of things like quantum encryption, which has the potential to really help us with our own encryption, but also potentially leave us vulnerable as well. So, so really trying to take a comprehensive approach and not overly focus on just the negatives or just the positives, but be very clear-eyed about both the benefits and the problems that, that these um, technologies will bring. Absolutely. Uh, that, that was really helpful to lay out some of those advantages that emerging and disruptive technologies might bring um, in this context to NATO. One final question. I know you're representing mm-hmm. the NATO international staff, but I imagine uh, one angle that is of interest to a lot of allies is where the United States is in the process of its own nuclear posture review. So I'm just mm-hmm. curious if U.S. officials have been consulting with NATO, whether it's through the nuclear planning group or the high level group, and what messages have you conveyed to the United States? on behalf of the alliance. Yeah, U.S. officials have actually consulted pretty extensively with allies, both bilaterally and here at NATO. Most recently in last month's nuclear planning group meeting that convened at the defense ministerial in October. But we've, you know, had briefings in the in the high level group in the HLG. You know, we've had other, you know, kind of committee meetings that have a have addressed the NPR as well. Um, and I'm sure the foreign ministerial meeting next week in Riga will be another opportunity for allies to express their views and to consult with the United States in that forum as well. So I think that there have been a a pretty extensive consultations here um, and then with allies uh, in general, which is really great. And I think allies are really appreciate 
the fact that the U.S. has been so willing to come to NATO and to other capitals and to really engage with allies. And I would say allies, at least in my hearing, have been quite vocal about their views regarding um, potential U.S. changes in policy and posture that could result from this review. And the Secretary General has also reinforced those messages um, with his meetings with U.S. officials reflecting the views that were of allies that we're hearing here in NATO. So I have no doubt that the U.S. understands where allies stand on these issues. Um, and I would expect we, we will continue to have consultations as their processes unfold in Washington and as they get a bit closer to finalizing some of the some of the decision points. But we have had a very open and continuous string of, of briefers at, at all levels um, and, and dialogue amongst allies and, and the United States. And so I think that that's been really positive to, to at least to ensure that allies' voices are being heard. The U.S. has been very clear that, that they have been hearing allies' voices and views and making sure that those are uh, reflected in their own internal processes in Washington. Thank you. That's so important. We we get an earful of that from allies uh, here in Washington as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's wonderful here that, that 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 engagement is ongoing and that allies are actually articulating their views with with the hope that they will be incorporated into any changes in in the U.S. Yeah. posture doctrine. But Jessica, thanks so much for your time today. I think we've answered our own question in terms of whether NATO is on top of the evolving nature of deterrence and defense with regard to that nuclear umbrella and angle, everything you've offered us from the capability investments to the changes in mindset and and how NATO thinks about this is really reassuring. So thanks again for your time and good luck over there with the upcoming foreign ministerial. Thank you so much. And it was a pleasure to talk with you today and uh, look forward to uh, further engagements in the future. In the first half of this episode, we talked about nuclear deterrence and how the nature of NATO's nuclear posture has evolved. We're now going to shift gears a bit to discuss another aspect of the changing nature of deterrence and defense, namely multi-domain deterrence and defense. And for that, allow me to welcome our next guest, Michael Mazar, who is Senior Political Science with the RAND Corporation. Hi, Michael. Great to be with you. So... For most of our listeners, when they think of deterrence, they think of that classic definition whereby deterrence is something that aims to prevent, whether by denial or punishment, an actor or adversary from doing something that you really don't want them to do. Now, this was really straightforward when NATO was dealing with state-based adversaries or threats that were just in a single domain, like nuclear or conventional. But deterrence today to me seems a bit more complex. We've got non-state actors, we have new domains such as space and cyber. In your view, have these fundamental tenets of deterrence changed? So the fundamental tenets haven't changed, I don't think. I mean, they they remain pretty timeless in terms of the threat needs to be credible. You have to have the capability and the will to carry it out, those kinds of things. The problem is the issues to which we're trying to apply it. And the fact that, uh, in my view, deterrence has become sort of a catch-all notion for achieving a lot of U.S. Uh, international objectives when what we really need to be thinking about with a lot of these other kinds of issues, like you mentioned, are broader issues of statecraft and resilience and things like that. Deterrence, uh, the basic principles remain the same. It's just that it doesn't offer the answer to a lot of these kinds of issues. You spoke about the need for deterrence to be credible and to make sure that the response is tailored to the actor. Are there other capabilities that are needed to deliver 
credible deterrence and defense in this new environment? So yes and no. I mean, I think, again, and I would distinguish between sort of below the threshold gray zone type challenges and then the multi-domain issue. The multi-domain question is the idea of trying to get various instruments to work together in sort of a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts to achieve uh, these synergistic effects. As a principle, that's not new either, but the way in which we can pursue it is changing. But you can certainly apply or or pursue deterrence through a multi-domain mechanism. But if you're trying to apply that to an issue like disinformation or covert operations or Chinese coercion of people in the South China Sea below the threshold of conflict, now you're trying to deter things where deterrence as a concept is just much more difficult to apply because the interest you have at stake may not be that great because once you have outlined a red line, they can always take actions underneath that red line. So in in the scope of actions below the threshold of conflict, the way we've looked at it, there's certain things that are the most intense and extreme where deterrence might apply. For example, sort of a Chinese fishing fleet assault on the Senkaku Islands, which is almost a version of of conventional aggression, but theoretically could be seen as a gray zone tactic. You can try to deter that, and you can make very clear, explicit, credible statements, back it up with specific kinds of capabilities, as you're talking about. But if you're talking about a lot of other things in the so-called gray zone, Um, The capabilities you're amassing are really capabilities to mitigate the threat, build resilience against it, rather than deter it per se. So that's kind of the distinction I draw is that if we're talking about things other than major conventional aggression, deterrence as a strategy only really helps you with a handful of those. So that resilience aspect, I mean, that is consistent with this ideal idea of deterrence by denial in a way. Um, you know, have we now added almost a new aspect to deterrence whereby you need to disrupt those attempts that you're talking about? So yes and no. I mean, I think, again, the, the issue comes back to whether we're talking about actually trying to deter something. So Russian disinformation attacks is a good example um, against Western Europe, against the United States, social media campaigns, other kind of public propaganda, RT and Sputnik, all that business. If we have a deterrent strategy, like so in the current crisis over Ukraine, we may decide we're going to try to deter large-scale Russian military action in Ukraine. That's sort of a binary action on their part. Uh, It's a clear sort of yes or no, have they done it? Um, We can make very specific threats to try to stop it. In the disinformation space, I I just don't think it's that clear. I don't know that we're ever going to stop general Russian activities, in part because, as they point out, we conduct certain, we, we have the broadcast of information into Russia that they consider to be political activism and we consider to be democracy promotion that we're not going to stop. So the idea isn't building those capabilities to deter. So I wouldn't say it's so much resilience for the purpose of deterrence by denial. It is resilience for the purpose of resilience so that a, a, an ongoing set of Russian activities is just less of a threat to us. But we're not really trying to deter it, per se, if you know what I mean, that same way. Now, there are certain ways in which we can increase the cost of these things. So we can put it on sanctions, we can you know, charge Russians involved in these things and prevent them from traveling to certain areas. 
So by increasing the costs, we can perhaps create a sense in the Kremlin where they say, all right, you know, let's calm down with some of the stuff. Let's reduce the incidence of it. Let's reduce the severity of it. it. It's not a negligible cost to us to undertake these kinds of things. But that's still different than deterrence. And that's why I feel like the use of this term deter has, has sort of metastasized to cover a lot of U.S. statecraft when the actual list of things we are trying to deter, that is prevent the other side from doing, is, is really pretty small. Thank you for that distinction between that deterrence preventative aspect and then building resilience, because mm-hmm. at least in a NATO context, that's those are two words that are appearing, I think, with equal consistency right now. Yeah. Um, and there is this tendency to, to either link them or to, to use them quite interchangeably. Going back to terminology, you've mentioned this, this idea of multi-domain deterrence. I think the U.S. government is currently referring it to, to it as integrated deterrence. Um, NATO has several other terms for it, but you know, we won't, we won't bore listeners with that right now. But, you know, how challenging is it in a U.S. context to implement this multi-domain or integrated deterrence, uh, whether it's in our strategies, our policies, our operational concepts, the capability investment decisions we make? You know, because NATO often looks to the U.S. for examples of how well it's been able to make this jump uh, to multi-domain or integrated deterrence, or it will be looking in that direction. How challenging has this implementation been for the United States? So it's hugely challenging. And, and um, I wouldn't say that we've even really begun to truly implement it on the U.S. side. Um, I mean, in one sense, the idea of integrating different tools to achieve a deterrent effect or an operational effect is nothing new. I mean, if, if, if we're threatening economic actions, possible military responses, informational responses to some action, then we're practicing integrated deterrence. And we've been doing that for decades, if not longer. The real question is, okay, are we entering a a context, an era in which this will be fundamentally different? This will have a different character. It it will sort of make a, a phase transition and become something radically different than it's been. And I think there's a reasonable argument for that, particularly in the information realm. But it's very difficult on the U.S. side in at least three ways. One is conceptually, and that is we just don't really have, we've used general phrases to talk about integrating elements of deterrence, but we don't know more precisely how this will actually work, what it really looks like sort of in practice, apart from saying we're going to do it all. The second reason is institutionally. The same as with NATO, the U.S. government is not organized to do things in an integrated way, not even within DOD in terms of the different military instruments, and certainly not across government. Just the State Department and DOD working together on what integrated deterrence really means in practice is, I think, going to be a very significant lift. And then third, I'd say bureaucratically within DOD, there's the problem that, you know, we're still not a fully joint deterrent or warfighting institution in the sense that different services have somewhat different concepts of how this works. And in particular, partly what you've seen is the Army and the Air Force getting together to talk about certain versions of this or certain implementation of it, and the Navy and Marine Corps being a little bit separate and on their own hook. I mean, they're all talking, but I think most would admit that we're far away from a truly holistic appreciation among the services. So 
getting this to work in practice in a way that is anything more than just a series of catchphrases, we're still a ways away from doing that, even as a single U.S. government, let alone trying to do that as an alliance. It is very challenging to organize for integrated deterrence, as it were. You, you alluded to the challenge in NATO. And for our listeners, the specific challenge is that NATO's integrated military structure is only integrated in the, in the conventional uh, domain. And so all other aspects would be national. So you would have to go back to national decision-making ma- centers in order to really realize these more multi-domain effects. So NATO has made some progress, for example, in saying that a cyber attack would be considered an Article 5 concern. But in terms of response, they'd be relying on a single member state, such as the UK, to push that effect rather than something that was made as a decision through NATO's integrated military structure at 30. So NATO certainly has its own challenges. Have you been following the debate on how NATO has been doing here and what are some of the challenges it's facing? So not as much on the NATO side specifically, no. I mean, I would say that the the example you just gave is very analogous to a similar discussion on the US side, which is another part of the conceptual piece we haven't defined yet. Integrated deterrence can mean thick or thin integration in a sense. Like, so on a thinner basis, um, you could say it's a coordination challenge. So if we've got a particular cyber uh, issue, we just need to decide, is it Cybercom? Is it DHS? Is it which piece of the cyber infrastructure is going to handle this in terms of response or counterattack or whatever the piece may be? Or you could say, no, we have to create single integrated hubs where all of this stuff is done and actually pull these pieces together. I think that is extremely unlikely from an institutional perspective. But it just begs the question again of what we actually mean by integration. And um, even even in the cyber realm where the threat's been true and the need for integration has been true for a while, I think it is fair to say that on the U.S. side, we have definitely made some progress. But even with this new administration, we're just readdressing the question of a single office for uh, that will have a lead on these kinds of issues in terms of coordinating responses, where that office should sit, what authorities it should have. So we're still a ways away from resolving that question of integration on the cyber piece. And that's that same issue of, do you have one office, as you would say, do you have one member state leading the response? And if so, how are those pieces coordinated to make sure that they work well together? So in addition to the challenge of deciding which member state responds using which capabilities, to me, integrated deterrence also suggests a whole of government approach. So Mm -hmm. sometimes we wouldn't be using a military response. Um, We would be seeking to respond below the threshold or, or in that more gray zone space and turning to things like sanctions or diplomatic messaging or economic diplomacy. In closing then, I, I guess going forward, my final question would be, do you have any recommendations for NATO as it considers how to address multi-domain deterrence as it updates its strategic concept over the next year? Yeah, so I guess I, two things occur to me. One is 
one lesson from the U.S. side is that sparking the conceptual discussion is a useful beginning point, at least. Whether it's working within NATO, whether it's commissioning work outside NATO, something to get people thinking about this and what it looks like in practice, you know, track 1.5 dialogues, all that good stuff to generate the intellectual capital that the alliance can then use to build would be useful. And then a second thing would be much more kind of applied and practical, and that is picking an area, one issue area, to really try to push this forward. You know, information security is an obvious one in some ways, although that ground is being worked pretty extensively. But whatever it is, to pick one policy issue that sits kind of close to the heart of this problem of integration, both from a deterrent and then potentially an operational standpoint, and get folks from the member countries working together on, okay, if over the next five years we wanted to become much better integrated in the way we are pursuing this and link it to other issues, what would that look like in practice in a very, very specific way? That would be another thing that would, that would sort of push the dialogue forward and begin to give the alliance practical ideas that it could try to actually implement. Thank you for that. Those are two very rich uh, suggestions, which I think fit into the way NATO does business. So conceptual discussions to get everybody's head you know, around the same idea and, and start moving in the same direction. And then your idea of choosing an issue area fits well into some of the tabletop exercises and things that, that mm -hmm. NATO has as its disposal. So if you see those in the strategic concept next year, we know who to footnote the credit to. <laughs> but thank you so much, Michael, for your time today and for really walking us through this idea of multi-domain deterrence and, and how that will be a challenge, not just for NATO, but for the United States and individual allies in the coming months and years. Sure thing. Glad to do it. That was another episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. Thank you again, Jessica and Mike, for joining us and to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you also to the team at CSIS for getting this podcast off the ground and to my colleague, Colin Wall, our lead researcher and coordinator on this project. If you like what you heard, please consider checking out our page on the CSIS website, subscribing to the podcast on your platform of choice, and leaving us a rating and review. See you next time. <laughs>